0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature.
1: I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage.
2: So the last few episodes of the show have, in one way or other, focused on the war in Ukraine or Russia's invasion of
1: Ukraine and war generally, which both of us uh, write about. That's true, but both of our, our we we both have connections to war, but our, our connections to war are actually pretty different. Um, I write about the Sri Lankan civil war because of my family's connections to that history, but you actually went to Iraq as a reporter, and sometimes listening to you, I've tried to imagine what that was like. How did you imagine it before you went, and how is it different from what you pictured?
2: Well. We actually are going to talk about a lot about that in this upcoming interview, so I'll, uh, there's a part in it where I will, I will talk about that. You know, It was not at all what I thought that it would be, and it was quite r- – the thing that I actually found m- most frightening about being a reporter and about war generally is how mundane it seems when you're at risk of dying, like how boring it is. Um, and, and yet you understand there's an existential risk in this moment, sitting on this bus on this particular road where you, I mean, Iraq was a particular kind of war where the greatest risk was from roadside bombs. And so those were random. There wasn't anything that you could do to sort of, there were some things, but there, you you know, there was still a roll of the dice there. It wasn't like if you had been super prepared, you would be safe. You know, there was a, there was a randomness that, that I thought was, that was shocking.
1: Well, it seems like this is reaching a whole new level again with what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, it's like, I mean, sort of like you say, like there is, it's not like if you try hard, it's going to necessarily go your way, right? Which is, I think, a thing that people were struggling with.
2: Ukrainians are trying very hard. I mean, well,
1: it's it's also sort of like the pandemic, right? Like, it's not a meritocracy necessarily who gets the virus. And so I think there's a way in which our brains can't quite, at least my brain, can't always track with that. I'm always like, but if I work really hard and I'm good maybe things won't turn out well. Um, Well, I think writers tend to be that type of person. You're like, okay, you know,
2: writing is itself a risky profession. And you think, all right, but I've I've made it in this profession. I can can use my wits. I'll be able to figure things out. And confronting a situation where that is not necessarily going to be the case, just as Scott Anderson um, in our previous episode was talking about that was what he felt like in Chechnya. So, you know, a journalist in that environment is, is is at a lot of risk and also like confronting, um, the limits of what they can control. I think which is what's hard about that. Or you know, being in a war is a situation where a, a writer confronts the limits of what they can control, and that's what's happening right now in Ukraine. I mean, we have had multiple journalists killed there recently. It's going. They're going to be more journalists killed there. Journalists are being targeted. I think specifically in Ukraine because. Putin doesn't want images of the war to get out, you know. And so we have developed a show today to talk about the risks of reporting in conflict and what some of those journalists in Ukraine are facing now. And we have a fantastic guest here
1: to discuss the topic with us. Putsada Reng is an author and journalist whose work has appeared in The New York Times, Politico, The Guardian, Ms., The Seattle Times, and The San Jose Mercury News, among others, Putsada was born in Cambodia and raised in rural Oregon, surrounded by berry farms when she and her family hustled to earn their middle-class existence. Putsada has lived and worked in more than a dozen countries, including Cambodia, Afghanistan, and Thailand. In 2005, she received an Alicia Patterson Journalism Fellowship that took her back to Cambodia to report on landless farmers. Her forthcoming memoir, which will be published in May by MCD Books, is called Ma and Me*. Its story explores the displacement experienced by children of refugees and the emotional exile that comes with being gay. It also includes Putsada's time as a journalist and as a journalism trainer in Afghanistan. Putsada, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sugi. I'm such a fan of your guys' show that this is such an honor to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that's very kind. Um so, Putsada, I know you've been thinking about the journalists covering the invasion of Ukraine. You and I were emailing a little bit before this interview. And several days ago, um, Brent Renaud, a filmmaker, was killed in Ukraine. He was working on a film for Time Studios, the studios affiliated with Time Media that publishes Time Magazine. And then more recently, there were two Fox News journalists, uh, Pierre Zakrusky and Sasha Kovschnova, who were killed outside of Kiev. And Sasha, who was Ukrainian, was only 24 years old. Uh, Zakruski was 55 and had worked in Iraq, Afghanistan and Syria. And it seems to me like the job of foreign correspondent has gotten steadily more dangerous over the past, say, decade and change. And I wonder if, if that sounds right to you and how you think Ukraine fits into that picture.
3: You know, it's hard for me to say whether increasingly foreign journalists are at greater risk or that, that the work that we do, is more dangerous, because certainly there were there was a lot of danger when, say, for example, Elizabeth Becker was in my own country in Cambodia, trying to cover the communist Khmer Rouge regime in 1977, two years after the Khmer Rouge took over. And there was a scene in the book she wrote uh, later from that experience, When the War Was Over, where she talks about an armed gunman entering the hotel room where she and two other journalists were staying and the only, and, and he started shooting and the only way she survived was by hiding in a bathtub. And so I don't know if this is a situation where the journalists that we're hearing about now, uh, that, that these are just more high profile cases and that's why we're hearing about them or whether this danger has just, has always existed but perhaps we haven't heard uh, to this extent or to this level um, of, of journalists dying on the job uh, working overseas and you know certainly one of the things i will say is that no doubt about it being a foreign correspondent anywhere in the world at this moment in time is extremely risky uh you know i i think a lot about you you know you talk sugi about um you know the dangers particularly within the within the past decade and for me i i would even dare say the past couple of decades because if we, if we go all the way back to Daniel Pearl who died in 2002 when he was lured by Islamic militants into a trap um, and uh, eventually brutally murdered. At that time, I was a young journalist at the San Jose Mercury News already with ideas that I wanted to become a foreign correspondent. And when the news of, of Daniel Pearl uh, came out, it, it certainly gave me pause but it also in in some way kind of hardened my resolve to go do this kind of work because it's so important and so critical that journalists shine a spotlight on on these very dark corners um, of the world. And then I think about, you know, just more recently, you know, we have the case, I I heard uh, Jason Rezaian who was picked up in uh, Iran uh, working there as the bureau chief for Tehran for the Washington Post, and he was there for 544 days. I think is what it was. Now, luckily, in his situation, he was released. He's alive and well. But that fate did does not pertain to that fate. Didn't happen to to other journalists. I'm thinking of Jamal Khashoggi, who. Uh, was brutally murdered in, or assassinated in, in 2018 at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, and again a situation where he was lured to the consulate. When Marie Colvin, who was reporting for the Sunday London Times, um, died in a bomb blast in Syria in, to, to, in 2012, I was working in Cambodia at the time, off and on, and um, her death really shook me to my core, because of course she, she's been a legend as a as a foreign correspondent, Um, And so I think we can we can point to these very high profile cases in which journalists working abroad have been killed. I think it's just harder. It's harder for me, um, you know, having come from that background and and coming from that world to to actually, you know, look at the data and say for for certain whether whether our work has becoming increasingly hazardous or whether this is just kind of part of. Part of the deal when when one chooses to be a foreign correspondent, that that there are inherent dangers that exist.
2: I feel like it has become more hazardous. Uh, I, I there was a I remember finding this report that I looked up from the Committee to Protect Journalists, that they were looking at Iraq between 2003 and 2011, when which was a time that I was there. They reported that 150 journalists and 54 media support workers were killed during that period of time. And then a different report from, uh, had slightly different numbers, from Reporters Without Borders said that they had to put the number of 230 people between 2003 and 2010. And they said that was more, journalists have been killed in any war since World War II. I mean, I feel like it's because increasingly, and this is happening in Ukraine, journalists are becoming targets, right? It's a problem for Putin that the journalists are there filming this, he would like it to stop, you know, and I think that that is one of the reasons that it is becoming more more dangerous.
3: I, I absolutely agree with you. With, I think that there used to be a time when journalists were considered um, sort of off limits when it comes to war zones and conflict zones. I don't know that that's any longer the case. Um, You know, for what I was speaking to particularly was a foreign journalist, I was thinking of through the lens of American journalists, particularly working abroad or European journalists working abroad. However, um, to your point on the data from Committee to Protect Journalists, if we are to take just journalists as a category internationally working in conflict zones, absolutely. The number of deaths and the number of journalists who've been targeted has increased. And
2: and Iraqi journalists were were targeted. Right. You know, I knew Iraqi journalists who who left the country because they felt like they were their lives were at risk, and others who did
3: right. die. And that's actually happening in in Afghanistan right now, as the Taliban uh, have regained control over Afghanistan.
1: You mentioned Jason Rezaian earlier, and um, if I'm memory serves, he's actually Iranian American, and so there is also um, right. That's a very interesting position to be in because you have folks who, like yourself, you know, going back to report. In a place, perhaps, where you have family history or connections, or um, you're presenting in a different way, and that seems like a whole different category. So it seems like there was a period of time when journalists were considered sort of um, precious, and you know, one did not want to appear to be targeting them. Then there was a period of time where maybe um, there were nobody wanted to. Um, people were ca- caring less about whether they were they were sort of a precious set of folks or not, but, but weren't necessarily targeting them. And now it does... Weren't the Fox... Oh, oh it just, and now, now just, it just seems like... Weren't they in a car that said press on it? They, they were. And, and I mean, the Fox and anyone like who that. you see reporting from Ukraine, or at least I've noticed this, um, I'm just watching the news, I feel like I'm, I'm watching people report in helmets that say press really large. And actually, when I have seen coverage from other places around the world in other years, I haven't necessarily seen that. I feel like these signs are getting bigger and bigger, sort of like... Like almost like this visual cue of increasing alarm um, because Putin is not going to consider um necessarily right um, whether someone is a journalist or not he and, and I mean, it's not just the question of I'm not going to target you intentionally there's there there's the next level which is I will target you intentionally as you as you note or like I will force you to leave the country, which is what, you know, like the, the Sri Lankan government, um, you know, had many journalists leave at the end of the war. Um, so they're like all of these, these different levels of, of, um, respect or, and then the actual journalists turning into active target seems like a completely different level. And you also mentioned, um, yeah, Marie Colvin, who's a total legend, um, who had also covered Sri Lanka and who, as I recall, had lost an eye. Um, um as a foreign correspondent
2: we stopped for just a second because i wanted to check and see whether that fox car had clearly been marked And the news reports that we're reading don't say that it was marked as press so we're gonna real-time fact check that and say we don't know for sure if that car was marked as press but while we're on the subject i've noticed that it seems like many of the people in the most danger are photographers and videographers which is connected to that idea that Putin especially doesn't want images of this shown, right, to the to the broader public and, and to the Russian population, of course, is why he shut down all the media in Russia. Um, do you think changes in how the news is read and disseminated have also changed who is in danger in a war zone like this?
3: Absolutely. I think it's so much easier for writers to hide. For photographers and videographers, they're carrying their gear with them. And so immediately that makes them a target. I also can't help but think of the photograph that Lindsay Adario of the New York Times did, this iconic image of a mother and her two young children, a girl and a boy, who were killed in a bomb blast in a suburb just outside of Kiev. When I think about all of the days of news that I've consumed, whether it's via TV news or radio or newspaper or blogs or what have you, what is the thing that stays with me? It's images. It's images. And I think that that's true for a lot of people. Images stay with us long after we have seen them as opposed to say, you know, a long think piece in the New Yorker or in the New York Times. That's not to say that writing no longer has a place and that, and that you know, only images are telling the story. That's That's not the case at all, but I do think that because of where we are in our society right now and how we consume news and how fast news is made via social media, whether that's TikTok or Instagram or other kinds of social media, uh, that our, our attention span as a species, you know, society has really declined. And so in that sense... It absolutely is harder, I think, and more dangerous for photographers and videographers in this scenario of operating in a conflict zone, because for somebody like me as a writer, as a journalist, though I would want to be there um, at the scene, as opposed to doing armchair journalism, I don't necessarily have to be, and I can report from afar, which is actually what a lot of uh, forum-based journalists in Russia are now doing out of Istanbul. just to get out of just to get out of the fray and to and to get out of Moscow, um, and so they're doing the best re- they can to report on the news uh, from a distance, you know, while keeping themselves safe. And so, you know, for for those of us who operate with words as opposed to pictures, um,
1: I, I, there's a little bit more safety, I think, in that. It's interesting because, like, kind of of course, like the old school stereotype of like the swashbuckling white man war correspondent. um... You know, facing danger with his notebook in his hand. Um, this is really kind of the opposite. You you were both mentioning before, kind of alluding to your friends who are local journalists um, in um, Afghanistan and Iraq um, and their increased level of danger there, which is also something that I've observed in Sri Lanka. Um, And I was reading that when Pierre Zakrzewski worked in Afghanistan, he worked to help freelancers and their families leave the country after the U.S. troop withdrawal. And Putsada, I know you have a lot of opinions on the U.S. troop withdrawal. And you'd mentioned to me that you're working to help someone still in danger there yourself. So can you talk a little bit about how the risks for local journalists differ in these conflict situations? Absolutely.
3: The risks are different in the sense that they are just magnified so much more so for local journalists than say for somebody like me as a foreign journalist being in other countries i have a u.s passport and and the privilege of that is it is is so high you know it's almost as if this this passport is a key that kind of unlocks my ability to move around the world as i wish It's not to say that Americans are welcome in every country or that there's no danger for travel, but certainly I can leave these situations and these countries, whereas local journalists cannot. And one of the things that I'll never forget when the Taliban took over um, Afghanistan once more in August of last year was that one of the journalists who I worked with and trained in 2008 in Kabul sent me a photograph of our class uh, on the last day of class. Um, and he, he sent in his email a very quick note um, that said, teacher, do you remember me? And it was so, it, it really caught me because, you know, 40 years prior to this moment, when my family was in Corvallis, Oregon, building new lives after fleeing the genocide in our country, My father received a letter in the mail after the uh, Khmer Rouge were ousted by the Vietnamese army. Um, And it was a letter by his half brother that said, that started with the line, Brother, do you remember me? And so, in in a lot of ways, my father's feeling of obligation to help family members come to America has now, 40 years later or 45 years later, been echoed in my own feeling of obligation to help others who are in a similar situation. And the journalist in particular, who who I am trying to help and um, have been able to get support from family and friends to be able to at least um, send him a little bit of money to buy food and and basics for now, um, this guy has a double target on his back because he is both Panjshiri and a journalist. And Panjshir, Panjshir, the Panjshir Valley, of course, is the area of Afghanistan that has been the most, um, I would say, combative toward the Taliban and, you know, extremely resistant to the Taliban. And this has historically been the case there. And so, you know, immediately when the Taliban took over, Panjshiri people, anybody who is Panjshiri like this journalist, were absolutely terrified and continue to be. This journalist I'm helping continues to be in hiding. And it, it creates a a a, a real dilemma and conundrum for for those of us who are foreigners and have and have gone to countries to to report or to help journalists you know report on their own stories because at the end of the day we can catch that last flight out of a country whereas local journalists cannot this is their country they have to stay and that was also true in and and has been true in cambodia when i worked there
2: so I'm curious about the journalism training job because when I was getting ready to go to um, Iraq, I, I I couldn't get any papers to, to like spot, you know, to say I was working for them as a freelancer. I wanted to go to write this novel, but um, because, and they were like, you have to go to this training center and do these things. And I was like, and they're, and they're like, it costs $3,000. I'm and like, I can't, I can't, I'm not, I don't have time for that. I can't do that. I ended up going with a, with a. A really weird, it was a very weird story. I went with the Engineering News Record, which was a paper published by, a magazine published by McGraw-Hill, but they had done a lot of reporting out of Iraq. So it was an engineering story, believe it or not. And they gave me my press credentials and I went and I ended up writing a story for the Washington Post. Uh, but that was how I got into the country. But I wanted, what, what did I miss by not being able to do the training that, that the Kansas City Star, the Washington Post, wanted me to do? <laughs> Well, first of all, with the kind of training that I do,
3: you wouldn't have been able to qualify because the training that I that I do is actually for local journalists. Oh, so there's so many trainings that I don't work. qualify for. It is okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, I worked with an organization called Inner News, and specifically, the work that we did was to train journalists in whatever countries we were living in, and specifically conflict and post-conflict countries, um, in 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 various topics of. Uh, journalism. Uh, sometimes it was political reporting. Sometimes it was investigative reporting. Um, sometimes it was health reporting or environmental reporting. And um, so the work that I did, or that you know, as that Internews does, and that I did specifically as what's called a, jur- a resident journalism advisor, is to is to train local journalists in sort of the the international standards of journalism. So what does it actually mean to to uh, to write, to report, and write a fair and balanced news story, what kind of research is required? How many sources should you really get? The, that it was that kind of training.
2: I think the kind of training they wanted me to do was the kind of training that you did in the story. In the, in the, we're going to read actually a passage from this where you were. You went through a conf- you did some conflict training when you were in Afghanistan. That's oh, right. in the book, right? Okay, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Did that work? Was it? Did you feel like that was worthwhile?
3: You know, I think I was so much in shock that. If, if I had to take any skill that I learned from that moment, I probably would have completely blundered it. Um, that particular training was really meant to help foreigners understand or, or actually uh, operate quickly in, in a moment's notice and in, in a very crisis situation. And um, so we were taught things like um, CPR, um, you know, just things like triage, how to even you know h- how to figure out who to save if you 're in a position to help save somebody and who not to um but it was a it was a pretty intense uh experience for me
1: I wonder if you could read a little bit to us from a section of the book that includes that experience i'd love to do
3: that um, there's a chapter in in my memoir called afghanistan and it and it really goes uh through that little interlude in my life where I decided to go report uh, in a, or be a journalist in a, in a war zone. And this chapter actually stands in juxtaposition to a, a previous chapter in the book in which my family is packing to leave Cambodia and to leave the war. And in this case, I am packing to go to a war. Uh, and so this chapter is Afghanistan. What do you pack for war? You make your best guess and go. You tuck into a suitcase a pair of black combat boots, tunics tailor-made to fall above the knees, scarves large and long enough to cover your head, things you never needed to own until now, things to make you modest in a country and culture that are not your own. You slip pictures of your family into a side pocket. You bring your camping headlamp and a few loose books. You get there and it doesn't take long. You find yourself running for cover. You hear a blast that shakes the earth, kaboom. To your left, a man clutches an open wound on his chest, slumped against the wheel well of a car on fire. To your right, a woman lies on the road with orphan shoes, broken glass, and chaos everywhere around her. Red heat licks at your arms and face, every corner you turn disaster. You freeze, the thing you are told not to do, the thing that is dangerous in war, being so afraid or in shock that you are rendered perfectly useless. Keep moving, a voice instructs. Triage, triage. If you find no sign of life, move on. The next few minutes become a blur. Check his pulse, make a tourniquet for her wounds, drag those bodies away from the blaze, You scramble from victim to victim, making dubious decisions about who gets to live and who is beyond saving. It's all guesswork deciding who is worth saving. The thought of it makes you nauseous. This isn't real, you repeat. Your mind understands, but your body is already hijacked. Tense with things it knows, things that live deep in your bones, like danger and fear, and the undertow of anguish that follows. You were told about this day in a memo your supervisor sent out. This is hostile environments awareness training, a fake war professionally built within a real war so so that you can practice how to exit alive. As your colleagues chuckle at the chicken blood smeared on faces and spilled onto the floor and the writhing bodies overacting in pain, You stand numb at their side. An ancient pain blooms in your body. Fight, flight, or freeze. Your body goes berserk. Your legs twitchy. Your fists clenched. Your stomach churning, churning. You will have nightmares for weeks after the simulation. Your body incapable of calm.
2: Thank you very much. You know, your book is, connects your history as a refugee to your career as a journalist, as you did in, 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 the, uh, in the opening comments to the reading. I was thinking about a particular passage from your memoir when you are back home, by, by back home I mean back home in your mother's country, um, and you visit a Khmer Rouge um, torture facility that's become a museum. And I wonder to, to some extent, you know, if that if reporting on the horror of war, desire to do that, could have been connected to that moment.
3: I think that absolutely it was. Um, when I look back, I I see the dots so clearly connected in that way. That moment when I was 16 years old, the very first time I visited Cambodia, and I was I was with my mother. When we re- when we got a tour of Dual Sleng torture prison, which was a, um, a a high school in the middle of Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, turned um, torture prison by the Khmer Rouge, where uh, roughly eighteen thousand uh, people were tortured to death. Uh, among the the people who died at Dual Sleng were journalists, and it was at that moment in the in the tour when. The tour guide told us that journalists had died there uh, that that i i know looking back changed my life forever it was knowing that during the genocide the khmer rouge regime specifically targeted journalists because brutal things happen in the dark and if there are no journalists in the country to tell what is happening that meant that Bobot and his regime could do as they wished. And indeed they did. Two million people died in my country. Um, but there's another piece of that too. The world looked away from Cambodia. And I think that when, when I think back on that time and, and my trajectory to, be, to becoming a journalist and ultimately my trajectory to getting to Afghanistan, I hold that as a very deep wound inside of myself that the world looked away when there was a genocide in my country as well as the journalists in Cambodia were targeted so no information could get out. And I thought, I cannot in my conscience ever let this happen again, to look away. Um, and, and I think that that is really one of the key motiv- motivators for me to become a journalist, is that this is, this is what journalists do. We, we go places and we, we, re- we report on things, regardless of the danger, because we're there to bear witness, and in in a lot of ways, and I I really believe in the the core tenet of journalism, as to give a voice to the voiceless. You know, if we have the ability the ability to expose these injustices and the brutalities of these regimes, then we have to. Because I don't think we. I I don't I really don't think that. Um, we can bear to look away anymore. How much how much more human catastrophe can can we watch? And I think that that's one of the actual. When I think about um, how heartbreaking to see all of the news coming out of Ukraine, on the other hand, how incredible to see how much news coming out of Ukraine, right? So it's like the fact that there is so much coverage make, gives is the thing that gives me hope that there possibly could be a, a better ending to the story in Ukraine.
1: And it's interesting also to see that um, I feel like I've both seen and heard um, conversations from people conversations and comments from people who I think feel very deeply for Ukrainians and are watching what is happening um, with great sympathy and who also are watching the way that this coverage compares to coverage of other places and feel that it is quite racialized, um, that it is, that it's marked in certain ways, Um, you know, and there was... Someone put together like a compilation, which I'm sure if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But just sort of all of these people saying, um, but these people are, quote, unquote, just like us. Um, right? No, this is civilized Europe. Um, and um, it's interesting to try to like sort of feel within myself like this struggle to, first of all, I mean, of course, like watching watching it, how could you not be completely horrified? Um, and yet also to sort of um, tick back in my own head all of the things that were not approached this way.
3: Absolutely. I mean, just very uh, recently, we can look at Burma and the conflict that's happening there. And, you know, there was a blast of news right off the bat, but then that has really died down. And I think, you know, what's been interesting to observe as a journalist watching Ukraine being covered is that the news coverage is consistent. It's consistent and it's persistent. And that's and that wasn't the case in other countries, um, where you know not surprisingly brown or black people are from
2: i the when you talk about the desire to tell stories and give voice to the voiceless i mean that was that was the reason that i uh wanted to go to iraq because i was opposed to the war and i wanted to participate in criticizing it to be honest i mean i thought and I, and i had had as i've talked to other other or had friends who were who were affected in bad ways by the gulf war um and so okay but when I was there, before I went especially, I would I, and, and then when I was like, going to do something that I thought might be d- dangerous, with which there were many things to do, um, I would think, you're an idiot. You're arrogant for thinking that you should give voice to the voiceless. You should be at home writing about the suburbs. What are you going to tell your kids? You know, I had a very young son when I went the first time. You're going to tell your son that you were giving voice to the voiceless when you end up dead and he doesn't have a father? I mean, that, there was another side to that for me that was extremely difficult and not very romantic, right? And and that I and that you, you write about it, exactly the same thing in, in the passage that you read. And I, I wondered if you felt that too. Like, yes, okay. I mean, I, I had to keep checking. Like, this is a thing I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. But there were times, and this, even for me afterwards, because I had problems writing, but when I was like, I shouldn't have done it.
3: You know, I I talk about, um, absolutely, everything you say, I I feel that echo inside of me as well. I talk about um, how I was not in Afghanistan for long, but I was there long enough. And what I realized only after the fact was exactly that, how stupid a decision it was. But I'm also of two minds of that. Um, because one of the things that I that I do wonder about myself, and I'm I, I don't have the answer yet, um, but it remains a question, is that for those of us who come from experiences and countries of war, are we just perpetually drawn to conflict? Is there something in us that needs us because it needs that, because that is what we know? And but what I realize too is that when we make decisions, as writers or as journalists or as artists to go to another country in these very um, dangerous and fragile situations and volatile situations, the decision that we are making also impacts so many other people in our lives. It impacts our families, it impacts our friends. If we have children, it impacts our children. At the time I was in Afghanistan, I, I, um, I don't have children and I didn't have a, a, a spouse, but my decision to go there impacted my mother particularly. Uh, I think the greatest, because what she told me before I left was, "We took you safely from war. Why do you want to go back to that?" And what I found out later was that while I was in Afghanistan for those four months, she called my one of my aunts practically every day and cried, just terrified for me. And similar, same with my siblings, they were worried to death. I I don't think I could make that decision again. It's I think it's too hard. I it's it's not a decision that we make where the consequences are ours to bear alone. No, the the sadness of something does happen to us and the grief of that is something that is borne by and must be carried by our family and friends.
2: I don't know, Sugi, I don't think you know this, but um, somebody sent me a CNN clip of Matt Gallagher, who was in Iraq, uh, I'm sorry, in Ukraine, training uh, soldiers. Uh, He's a guy, he's a writer who's been on this show twice. And I just thought, Oh fuck, don't do that. <laughs> you know, I really did. I'll tell him that. He'll be upset when I say that, but he probably felt the same way, you know, but uh, he he mentioned that he had a he has a very young son, you know. And I and I I am sure there are lots of extenuating circumstances. He was in Lviv and they're already out, you know, cuz they didn't run the film, but I just there's a scary part to it that that I always want to make sure everyone understands, you know. Uh,
3: it, it's really scary. L- Lindsay Adario has children, and when she was interviewed about being in Ukraine, I'll never forget. Um, she was asked um, something along the order of, um, I can't quite remember the question, but it was something in the spirit of, "Was it worth being there?" And what she respond, how she responded was, I thought, so telling. She said, "I don't know. Ask me in three months. Ask me when I, you know, when I can be reunited with my family." And um, because. We don't fully know the consequences of our decisions to enter these kinds of situations until long after the fact. It's been 14 years since I left Afghanistan, and I'm still dealing with the PTSD from it. That chapter that I read earlier was the very last chapter to be revised in the book because of the fact that I hadn't yet reconciled that experience. I just kind of shoved it under, you know, deep inside because it was... It was, it was too painful and emotional to, to deal with that moment in my life. I just didn't deal with it. Um, but, you know, that PTSD manifests in different ways. And now it's um, it, it impacts my relationship um, with my wife um, in different ways. And so those are the kinds of sort of aftershocks that follow when we make these kinds of decisions.
1: So, Patsara, you also write about being gay and how that affected relationships with your family, and I wonder if you can talk about um, how that might have affected your, you know, say you were going to Afghanistan, you were deciding to go to Afghanistan now, um, how you might think about that?
3: If I was deciding to go to Afghanistan now, I absolutely would not go under the Taliban. And that's because what I know of Afghanistan now, to be LGBTQ, uh, is um, is, is to be, you know, is is a crime under the Taliban in Afghanistan right now. It wasn't the case when I was there in 2008 under a Western-backed government. And so I think the stakes were a little bit different. But, you know, certainly this, this question brings up that added dimension of not only, you know, are we a foreign journalist, but then if you are a queer foreign journalist, you know, d- does that raise the stakes in some way? And I think I really t- truly believe that it does depend on who's who's in uh, power in the country in which you're working in?
1: I was going to ask you um, to talk a little bit about um, PTSD. I think that there's, I mean, I don't think that we talk about it enough in general. Um, and I think that a lot of the discourse about it in this country, I mean, for logical reasons, um, is connected to the military. But as you were talking about, journalists experience it too. Um, and there are, some really valuable resources for that. I know that, um, like I'm on the, the center, the, the DART center, um, at Columbia, which is, um, has a lot of resources related to journalists and trauma. Um, but I don't know that. And and certainly like, I think, you know, fiction writers, um, and creative writers have, are also engaging in research where sometimes I don't know that we always have the language or the tools to think about, um, the things that we have seen. Um, and, sometimes, especially in other genres, like you're not even necessarily saying that you saw it. So um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you have coped with that um, after coming back, what tools you think there are. And Whitney, I'd be curious to hear you talk about this too, because I know that that's something that has affected you as well.
3: Sure. Uh, You know, it was hard for me to transition back to the U.S. after I left Afghanistan. And within that first year, I remember... uh, I landed back in Portland, uh, close to my folks and remember going to Safeway, um, in my neighborhood grocery store to just pick up bread and the bread aisle probably had 80 kinds of bread and I just had an absolute breakdown and started crying and sobbing for no reason. Well, I mean, I say for no reason, but you know, the reason was I'd come from a country where there was one option of bread, flat bread. And here I was in America with 80 different kinds of bread. And I felt my privilege so deeply in that moment. And so I remember calling my sister and my sister said, you know, put calm down. Just why don't you go home? Do you need the bread right now? Just go home. And kind of breathing, you know, taking, taking a lot of deep breaths and reminding myself I'm not there anymore, you know, and I'm, I'm fine. I'm OK and I'm safe. And, you know, the, the PTSD emerges. It, it's almost like you're ambushed by um, by the PTSD, you know, a car will backfire and I'll hit the floor still. Uh, July, uh, 4th of July is very problematic for me. So my wife will put um, uh, ear-canceling headphones on me and we'll go to the basement um, for the night of 4th of July. Um, anything to sort of mitigate um, the, the impacts because any loud sound um, really sends me into a tailspin. And so she'll announce before she's about to, you know, Whack a fruit in half and in the kitchen or something. If she knows that there's going to be a loud sound, she'll announce it. And you know, I think about how all these kinds of adaptations came about in order for me to find my sense of calm again. And I think that is the one thing that PTSD and and trauma in general sort of messes with you is that it completely throws you off balance. You begin to wonder if you will ever just feel calm again. Um, And so, with the help of you know, just really fantastic therapists now, actually, I'm starting to really understand um, how deeply, not just Afghanistan, but the different layers of trauma has impacted my life and manifested. And so that's been really fantastic, um, just to be able to start working through some of that. Um, But I'd be curious too, Wit, about your experiences, um, because you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, active war zone. Uh, there, You probably experienced very similar things that I did with bombings and shootings and all sorts of things.
2: Yeah. Iraq in, in 2006 was particularly bad. Um, you know, they got off the plane uh, in the Baghdad International Airport, walked into a subway, which was connected to the military side of the airport, and there was like a young kid walked in crying, and his friend had just gotten blown up at a gate, you know. I mean, you could hear mortar fire, you could hear gunfire uh, to get from where I landed on the plane to get get my press pass. I had to ride on like this rhino, they called it. It was like a, an armored bus that, so the walls had been thickened so much that it was only room for two seats, you know? And <laughs> and, and we had to drive at 3 a.m. with like Black Hawk helicopter escorts. And, you know, you knew things were bad. And my the guys that I was with, the job that I was reporting on were guys who went to look for IEDs. So you knew that was going to be bad. Now, I did not get hit by an IED, but... You know, the unit that I was with uh, got me out of the convoy that was looking for them right before they got hit in an area that they thought were dangerous, I'm sure, to protect me. Fortunately, only the blasting cap went on off, off on that IED and nobody was injured. But there were 20 soldiers in that battalion that were killed over the summer that, uh, that summer of 2006. And so, but for me, it wasn't um, physical triggers like you were talking about. I just had massive anxiety that mostly about and it was like it was like a repetition of like I'd had a lot of anxiety about going in so like there was a moment when I could have always decided not to go right I could have said you, you can call up and say I'm not going you know you don't have to go unlike soldiers who have to go and, and I always remember mind like how much their anxiety has got to be much worse than mine and the people in the country the iraqis and or in this case ukrainians as we're talking about you know Nevertheless, it gave me some insight into how they must feel, you know. I mean, I, I just kept having this voice in my head that's saying, you're stupid, you did a stupid thing, you've ruined your life, you're never going to be good at writing, you, you should have, you, it's never going to work. And I just, I quit writing for a couple years, you know. I had to just like, because I couldn't figure out how to write the book. Every time I wrote the book, I would, I would like replay the anxiety that I had felt when I was in certain combat situations, right. And so you can't write a book with your fist clenched the whole time, you know. It's got you got to have be able to have humor and love and feeling in it. And I wasn't able to access that because every time I would access the material, this voice would start up. They'd be like, "You're stupid. You're dumb. You did a wrong thing," and you know that just took therapy and drugs and to sort of break that cycle for me.
1: Well, I both are, I appreciate both of you talking about that, which I know is difficult, um, and which I think that especially like this, our country and our world is at a mental health moment where resources are so thin. And also I feel like I'm just seeing people struggle. Um, so I'm glad that we can also talk about the mental health aspect of it. And I'm thinking as I say that about students, oh, my God. <laughs> and as I, as I think about this also, I'm also thinking about my, my students. Um, Whitney and I both teach in MFA programs. Many of our listeners are emerging writers, um, and as I'm hearing both of your answers, um, I'm, I'm thinking about that as well. And I'm curious, Patsada, what advice you would give someone considering becoming a foreign correspondent now?
3: Wow, <laughs> what a question. Uh, there? <laughs> I, think I just what, I'd I end know, on this light note. <laughs> <laughs> right, you, you know, I, I think that the answer to that question lies in a couple of things that that Whit and I both uh, talked about and, and articulated in terms of how we felt after we made decisions to go to the respective war zones uh, that we where we went uh, that we that we went to. Um, I really am of two minds about this. A part of me wants to tell an emerging writer who wants to be a, to become a foreign correspondent, go, absolutely go. Somebody has to tell these stories, but then of course the other part of me and this is the part um, of me that is years beyond my my time in Afghanistan who's looking back now and who's still dealing with the repercussions of making that decision to go um, that other part of me wants to say hold on let's let's wait a minute here um, Are you sure you want to do this because it 's not just that immediate decision to to go to a conflict zone or to go to to another country as a reporter that decision is going to ricochet throughout the rest of your life and are you prepared uh, to live with the consequences of that decision um, because it's because they 're not easy and even if even if um, writers don 't go to conflict zones and you you are a foreign correspondent. I guarantee you, no matter what country you go to, there's gonna be conflict of some sort or another. There are very few countries in our world today that are really, I would say, you know, have 100% peace. And um, there's just a lot of reconciliation that, that you have to do and you have to live with. And also, can you live with how your decision is gonna impact people who love you and people who you love?
1: Yeah,
2: I would echo all those things. I guess that I would say to them, Is there a way that you can figure out not to do this? And if you can't, okay. You know, I think in the end, for me, I couldn't figure out a way not to do what I was doing. Um, And it sounds like that was true for you as well.
3: I think it was, Whit. And and one last thing I will say about that is that very often, this is true for for me, I, I see both as a writer and as a journalist, that part of me feels... Deeply compelled to do this, it's it's almost as if it's not even a decision. There's just some other force that's working behind the scenes to say, "You're meant to tell these stories. You're meant to go to these places."
1: Well, thank you so much, Pozzada, for joining us today um, for this conversation. We really appreciate it. Um, and thank you to you too for sharing some of these thoughts. And listeners, we encourage you to order, uh, to pre-order, actually. Um, Putsada's unforgettable memoir um, which is called Ma and Me and it will be out in mid-May and we will have a link in our show notes Putsada thank you it's really good <laughs> and it's really good <laughs> thanks you guys this was such a fantastic conversation that's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub this show is produced by Ann Kniggendorf to subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at fnfpod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our Lit Hub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned during this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with a full video and audio archive, and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. I'd like to dedicate this episode to journalists covering conflict around the world, and particularly those who have lost their lives doing that. I'd also like to point our listeners to the Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University, which is a terrific resource. Until next time, take care. Happy reading and writing